This time I'm going to enter into our scripture reading, which comes from Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, say this. The bride says, On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let me pray for us. Abba, Father, we come to you as children. Children who dabble in passions, loves, and lust. Trying with all our might to make sense of the desires of our heart. So God, I pray that we would submit those desires to your lordship tonight as we see what you have to teach us from your word tonight. As we study your word about how we find our way into these temptations and these situations. As we just stumble into them, Lord God, I pray that you would show us your grace in the midst of such scenarios. And God, teach us how we can avoid them altogether or to go about the right process in finding whoever it is, that prospect that you have for us if we long for marriage. God, I pray that you would just pave the way, that you would give us the journey and you would light our way one step at a time by way of your word. And may it start tonight. So God, would you be with us? Would you be here here present to bless us through your word, as we worship you for all of who you are, as you have revealed yourself to be. God, would you be with us as we worship you in spirit and in truth tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the 1700s and 1800s, women could not flirt openly or explicitly due to social restrictions and cultural norms. Society disapproved of any type of overt sexual advances from a woman. Uh, Thus, a woman's best tool for flirting was nonverbal communication, something that all women had at the time was a handkerchief. In 1877, an author by the name of Daniel Schaefer wrote about how the handkerchief could signal feelings. He writes, The handkerchief among lovers is used in a different manner than its legitimate purpose. 
The most delicate hints can be given without danger of misunderstanding. And in flirtations, it becomes a very useful instrument. It is, in fact, superior to the deaf and dumb alphabet, as the notice of bystanders are not attracted. Women would use their handkerchief as a means to communicate uh, their interest or lack thereof to the men around them without anyone really noticing. It was their way to be subtle and to minimize risk of danger or embarrassment. Ruth did not have the luxury of some handkerchief code to signal her feelings for Boaz. Instead, she placed herself in a dangerously vulnerable situation one night. And we're going to study that passage together. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Where we will see what forced Ruth in between a robe and a soft place. Between a robe and a soft place. Let's look together at Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may, be, it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us tonight. That you would teach our hearts as we submit them to your lordship, that we would not rebel, but we would listen carefully and see where we need to submit to your authority and what is best for our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's going on in this passage? <laughs> Admittedly, there are some contextual differences between the culture during Ruth's time and our own. But even then, we are sensing some scandal in our Bible's love story, aren't we? Ruth isn't caught between a rock and a hard place. 
She's caught between a robe and a soft place. Here are two single adults lying down together alone in the cool of the night. How did we get here in our story? How are we supposed to feel about it? What are we to think about Ruth placing herself where she does? Well, let's learn together what we can about how Ruth was stuck between a robe and a soft place. The first thing we see is that good intentions stir us there. Good intentions stir us there. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Just as we saw last week, Naomi desired more for her daughter-in-law, right? Naomi's son had passed away, and here she is with Ruth, and she desires more for her daughter-in-law than just to simply live with her. She had prayed back in Ruth chapter 1 verse 9 that Ruth would find rest in the home of a husband. Now, Naomi sees a way for Ruth to obtain that rest that she wanted so desperately for her. Regardless of what other motives Naomi has, she must care somewhat for her daughter-in-law as we're reminded that this is the same daughter-in-law who mourned with Naomi during the passing of her husband and two sons. Naomi also thinks very highly of Boaz, as she should. Remember, it said at the beginning of chapter 2 that Boaz is a worthy man, that he is prominent, noble, influential, and wealthy. And on top of all that, he's also a hard worker. Notice where Naomi says he'll be with great certainty. She says, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. You know who Boaz reminds me of? And you're going to think I'm so strange for saying it. He reminds me of Bruce Wayne. I think Boaz is the the Batman of Bethlehem. He's like, think about it. Like he's, he's a prominent, rich philanthropist by day. And the man who gets into the gritty business of taking care of his city by night. Okay, no, maybe that's a stretch. Okay. (laughs) The important thing is that Boaz is doing the hard work of the harvest himself. And the people of Bethlehem, they know that about him. So far in our passage, this doesn't seem so bad, does it? Why shouldn't Ruth see Boaz as a prospect for marriage? He is kind, he is noble, he is wealthy and stable, and he works hard for his position in society. This seems like the best rest possible. And seeing as he is the kinsman redeemer, it is indeed possible. Good intentions have so stirred in Naomi that they have caught fire in Ruth as well. The second thing we see 
certain choices move us there. Certain choices move us there. Look again at verses three through six. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Ruth received instruction from Naomi. This isn't really advice. Uh, notice in that last verse, she, she did exactly what her mother-in-law commanded her to do. So what exactly did Naomi command Ruth to do? Put on makeup and perfume? Put on some nice clothes? Go to Boaz? Wait until he's alone and impressionable? And lay down next to him? Seems legit, right? That's just another Saturday night in Bethlehem? Yeesh. No, this is the part of the story that makes us uneasy. We've seen this play out. Girl gets ready for the date, gets excited about the guy. They enjoy a night out. One thing leads to another. And they're laying next to each other around midnight, feeling miserable, confused, and somehow still alone. And I just want to say, if you've lived out that story, my heart breaks for you. And you might find some comfort in this. The original audience would hear this story and begin expecting it to play out in a similar way. I want to say there's, there's nothing wrong with putting on makeup and some nice clothes to go on a date and enjoy undivided attention with a person of the opposite sex. Nothing wrong with that. There is, however, something very wrong with the hookup culture in society today. And if everyone is honest, the modern way of dating is disastrous. And if Christians partake in it, it will lead to a lot of hurt, a lot of personal hurt and a damaged witness for Christ. Christians do not date for sex. If I can submit to you why Christians date, this is what I would tell you. Christians date to evaluate a person with the interest of pursuing them for the purpose of marriage. I know that's a lot. I'll break it down for you. Christians date to evaluate a person. You are going to spend time together to figure out, is this the person that I view as a possible prospect for marriage? You're evaluating in, on these dates with the interest of if things are going well and you enjoy that time that you're spending, you're going to pursue them for one purpose, and that's marriage. Not for sex, for marriage. Christians date to evaluate a person with the interest of pursuing them 
for the purpose of marriage. If that is not your aim, when you invite someone on a date or you say yes to someone to a date, you are in danger of harm physically, mentally, emotionally, and not least of all, spiritually. But you're also in danger of bringing reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. If you say, Pastor, that's, that's me. I'm the person in the story. That's happened to me. I've felt that and I've done that. Again, my heart hurts to hear you say that. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's grace meets you in the darkest moments of your past. I may not have experienced what you've experienced, but I've seen the God of the Bible meet me with grace in the darkest parts of my past. Where sin abounds, there grace abounds all the more. Praise God. Praise God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, what we sang in King of Kings, through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's grace is strong enough to cleanse us of our sexual sins. And not only that, but to empower us to live a life that no longer chooses to pursue them. That is the gospel. Certain choices moved Ruth to the threshing floor that night. But the right circumstances kept her there. So we see right circumstances keep us there. Look again at verses 7 and 8. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Winnowing was hard work. Uh, it's the constant motion of ripping through a mixture of grain and chaff and tossing it up in the air so that the wind will take the chaff, but the grain will fall back to the ground. Uh, you would preferably do it in a very windy location, so the wind is carrying the chaff as the grain is falling back down. That's where we get the expression, separate the wheat from the chaff. He had done that all day, now that harvest was complete. So he makes a night of it. He says, you know, I'm going to spend all day winnowing uh, through the night and have dinner and, and celebrate it with wine and, and good drink uh, and food. And then he sleeps on the grain to keep it safe until his grain guy can show up the next morning and take it. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> And this made for just the right circumstances to keep Ruth there that night. And not just keep her there, but position her in a dangerously vulnerable situation. As Boaz lies down for the evening, Ruth sneaks over to him, lifts up the hem of his robe above his feet. And in all likelihood, she lays her 
himself down near his ankles and covers herself with the hem of his robe. Put yourself at the threshing floor that night. There's a light breeze because we're in a place where winnowing is practiced. It smells like grain. Some of it roasted probably smells pretty good. Complimented by Ruth's perfume. Can you smell that? You can hear Boaz breathing softly. He doesn't seem like the one to snore. (laughs) And it's quiet. Everyone in Bethlehem's asleep by now. And if not for this seeming, for this to be a scandal, it would almost be peaceful, wouldn't it? Boaz feels the chill on his feet and thinks to cover them up but he feels something obstructing his feet from simply pulling his robe back over them and his fuzzy eyes see someone. It's a woman. What would any fallen man do? What would anyone assume happens next? In a post-Me Too movement world, We'd assume it's yet another story where woman needs man. Man uses woman, and woman is left oppressed, silenced, and helpless. This is just the world we live in and have lived in for thousands of years. Any other ending to this story is a cover-up, right? Wrong. In fact, one defense that we as Christians present for the authenticity of the Bible is just how raw our heroes of the faith are. Our saints aren't very saintly. Our Savior is, but the rest of the people in the Bible are scoundrels. Moses killed a guy. Noah, drunk. David slept with Bathsheba. If the author of, the, of Ruth wanted to eliminate the scandal altogether, he'd write a different story entirely, wouldn't he? Instead, he showcases it. He makes it one of the most beautiful moments in the story because that's just what it is. The story shows us God's grace to provide escape or enjoyment when one is caught between a robe and a soft place. God's grace provides escape or enjoyment. Let's look again at verses 9 and 10. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord Yahweh, my daughter. Ruth says, spread your wings over your servant. This is calling us back to what Boaz says of Ruth in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. That she took refuge under the wings of the God of Israel but it can also be translated in another way. It's about to get good, y'all. 
spread the corner of your garment over your maidservant. It can also be read that way. That, that's, that's another meaning. Spread the corner of your garment over your maidservant. It's kind of a, a word picture for what she's just done, isn't it? And in fact, that idiom means to marry. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. One commentator says it this way, the gesture no doubt symbolized the man's protection of her and probably his readiness for sexual consummation as well. So how does Boaz respond? May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. Wow. Here is a man and a woman sharing an intimate moment and God is mentioned in their midst. He and he alone can provide the way of escape for these two unmarried souls burning with passion for one another. And he will go on to do just that. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. For now, let's just appreciate that by God's grace, there was no scandal that night on the threshing floor. There was a right fear of God and a plan to go about pleasing him, not each other. May the same be said of us in those moments that we're caught between a robe and a soft place. And by God's grace, he will provide us the way of escape. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have access to the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Amen. If you are a born again Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living, dwelling inside of you. And he empowers you to walk in obedience. Amen. That you would be holy as he is holy. That you would be pure as he is pure. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That doesn't mean you give in to your flesh. It means that you fight it with the one who is willing to help. I often counsel young adults who are struggling with a compulsion towards pornography. They look at God like, where are you? I need your help. Meanwhile, they say, I can't give up unlimited access to the internet. I can't delete my social media. I can't stop walking in slippery places. Then don't blame God when you fall into temptation. C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite quotes that he's ever said, says this in Mere Christianity. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ 
because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. The only one who knows the full weight of temptation never yielded to it. How can we ever think that he is not prepared to bring us out of it? By God's grace, he will provide the way of escape or enjoyment. Notice that these four notes on stumbling into intimacy are neutral statements. They are true for good or for bad. They can be true for finding the person you hope for in a spouse and then committing your life to them. Think about it. Good, inten good intentions stir us there. Certain choices move us there. Right circumstances keep us there. God's grace provides us enjoyment. The difference between whether you escape temptation or enjoy the moment is decided in one simple question. Are you married to them? Are you married to them? It's important for me to point out a truth to you as a pastor. As Christians, we believe that sex is a gift meant to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. If you are not married and you are having sex, you are in sin. There shouldn't be anything controversial about that statement, but there is. Because we live in a desire-driven culture where limiting one's sexual ambitions is seen as an assault on one's identity. That mentality will lead you to a very disappointing lifestyle. I do not preach this message as an affront to anyone. I simply preach this message so that Christian single adults would remain pure and celibate until they find someone that they commit their life to in the form of marriage and enjoy God's gift of sex in that place, in the arms of someone who truly cares for their spouse's soul more than their own sexual fulfillment. That's why I preached tonight's message is that people would flourish, not just any people, Christians would flourish in the culture that pitches freedom and when it's actually enslavement. And the world looks at what we, says and what we offer and says that's enslavement and what it's actually, it's freedom. Which brings us to our point tonight. Love is a dangerously vulnerable commitment. So choose your partner wisely and pursue holiness together. Love is a dangerously vulnerable commitment. So choose your partner wisely and pursue holiness together. And as we live this out, I would like to give you just some practical application for what this might look like for your life.
First, be patient. First uh, Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, love is patient. Love is patient. Display your love to the Lord. That you are willing to wait for whoever he provides in time. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And if he lives and dwells within you, he's going to produce the fruit of that patience. And this could be a way. And while you're being patient, I would love to just recommend a resource to you that helped me in a time where I was having a really hard time being patient. And that would be The Path of Loneliness by Elizabeth Elliot. I think the world of Elizabeth Elliot because of that book. So I would love to recommend that resource to you, The Path of Loneliness by Elizabeth Elliot. Second, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You have to protect your heart as you entertain the thought of romance. It's nice to think about, but you can get swept away with it. So guard your heart. Rom-coms, they're fun. (laughs) But they also can produce an unrealistic expectation and oftentimes inspire hopelessness and despair for your own situation. Be careful. Don't let yourself get swept away by the wrong criteria in a prospect. Be true to your convictions and don't compromise on what's most important in a potential spouse. Guard your heart. Third, keep calm. You heard in our scripture reading for tonight from Song of Solomon, chapter three, verse five, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't set yourself up to fail. Create boundaries early on in the dating relationship that practice physically what's already been done mentally and emotionally as you guard your heart. Again, don't compromise. And then fourth, evaluate well. If going on dates is about an evaluation that turns into a pursuit, evaluate well. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And an application of that verse is that you would really, that would kind of dwindle the prospects down quite a bit. Some people call themselves Christians, but they don't follow Christ. They aren't born again. They aren't really Christians, so they aren't really a prospect for marriage for you. Don't missionary date. That's where you have the audacity to think that you can convert a man or woman simply by wooing them uh, towards Jesus in the dating relationship. Don't do that. That's wrong. It gives them the wrong impression about you and your Savior. Don't do it. All you do is pose the question to yourself. Do I enjoy spending quality time with this person? And eventually, do I want to pursue them for the purposes of marriage? 
I'll say this. Um, in my own recent dating relationship, uh, at the end of every date until we were officially in a relationship, I asked my girlfriend, Anna, one question. Do you want to keep doing things like this? That was the last question I asked after every date leading up to our uh, being in an official relationship. Do you, do you want to keep doing things like this? And it provided clarity and certainty between the both of us as we just communicated how this was going. As we both agreed, we evaluated together how much we were enjoying each other's time and attention. Although I was always prepared for a no, <laughs> by God's grace, she kept saying yes. Amen. Amen. And I am still enjoying the fruit of those yeses. Remember, Love is a dangerously vulnerable commitment. So choose wisely who that person is and then pursue holiness together. I pray that this gives you an idea of where to go and what to do, what next step to take from a passage that appears to be a scandal in the Bible but is actually not. Because as we'll see, there, there's a beautiful end to this story rooted in this beautiful moment that it brings about certainty and communication by God's grace. So let's pray for that together, for each other, as we try to navigate these waters of what does it look like to date as single adults in this culture and if you need help, reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are happy to help, happy to pray, happy to just join alongside you as we aim to love God and love people and to display that love to the world.